Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Team Human is about solidarity, and Esteban Kelly brings us deep knowledge of how worker cooperatives achieve economic justice and how their model of democratic participation can extend to society at large. And so what we talk about is not just co-ops and worker co-ops, but actually workplace democracy. That if you're spending five days a week at a workplace, well, it may as well be fulfilling and empowering and participatory and all those other things. You are not alone. And I don't just mean that as far as the new X-Files revival is concerned. But you are not alone as a person and more specifically as a, as a worker. You know, solidarity has gotten a bad rap over the last century of uh, American private capital corporate ideology. But uh, solidarity is actually a good thing. Um, it does take a village. And solidarity is the thing that's hardest to uh, forge and maintain in our digital economy. You know, I was uh, talking with someone about the Amazon Turks program. And for those of you who don't know, Amazon Turks is a, uh, a way for people to work for, you know, pennies per task on tiny computer tasks that well, that computers can't do. So people with no jobs can log onto a computer, log into Amazon, and maybe identify pizzerias in photographs or try to figure out the uh, numbers on houses, on street maps. 
And for each task that you do, you might get a penny or two, which could add up to, you know, whopping sums of, you know, a buck or two every hour even for doing these tiny little tasks. But, you know, when you're doing these tasks, there's not like a a chat button. It's not like... It's not like one of these social apps where you can see who are the other, you know, million workers uh, online at that moment and what tasks are they doing. It's not like, uh, how much are you getting paid? What's going on? No, there's no lateral communications between the workers. You are absolutely alone, right? And you are alone because the conditions really are so bad that if you were to talk about them with someone else, you might be able to forge some solidarity. You know, so instead, you sit there doing these little tasks. If the person who's hired you to do the task, so of course you'll never see, if they decide that you haven't done it well, they can reject the work and keep it and not pay you, right? So there's no recourse. You know, you could sit there, not that they should do it, but they, they could and they do when they want to save money, get a few million tasks done by people, and then just simply check the box that says, oh, this wasn't sufficient, so you don't have to get paid at all. And the ironic thing is the tasks that people are doing in this you know, supposedly liberating digital age, the tasks that people are doing are the tasks that are even too boring for the computers to do. You know, the computers are busy doing high-level tasks. They're writing Hollywood screenplays and designing video games and analyzing consumer trends and coming up with big data analysis and correlations. What do you do? What do we humans do? Well, we got to just figure out what's the number on that house? You know, where's the pizza in this picture? Uh, where's the nostril? Or what color is this? We're like human scanners, basically. It's the, the old optical character recognition when you scan a book and it's going to turn it into text. That's the kind of work that the humans are doing so the machines can do the higher order, the higher order activities. Right? So now we have, you know, machines directing human labor not even like a a good old-fashioned assembly line. At least, you know, on the assembly line, there was a person next to you. You you could talk, say, oh, gosh, the assembly line's moving fast today. It's moving slow. Maybe the foreman would come by and say, shut up, stop talking, get back to work. But at least you could walk with that person to the bar after work. It was in the bar by the waterfronts where a lot of the labor activism happened because people were sitting there after work having a beer saying, gosh, this is unfair. They dock our pay when we do this and they don't hire us for that. They're not giving us regular hours. Maybe we should unionize. What should we do? At least you know who the other guys are on the assembly line, the other guys and girls. In Amazon Turks, you don't know who they are. They're just, God knows where they are. They could be in other countries. They could be next door. And since you don't have a job and this work is sort of Uh, lowbrow. It's almost shameful that you're doing it to begin with. It's not something that you even want to talk about that, yeah, well, to make ends meet, I'm doing this kind of Amazon Turk stuff. So we're completely isolated. And that's actually an extension of the isolation that was built into the American labor landscape really since around FDR's time. You know, when we built Levittown and the other suburbs, let's call them, the other planned suburbs around our uh, our metropolis regions. They were designed not just by the Levitt brothers, but along with government psychologists trying to figure out how do we maintain a passive population, right? A whole bunch of guys had just come back from World War II, 
The government was worried that these people might be crazy. They're going to revolt. A lot of them have guns. You know, we have to see how can we keep these people docile. And one way they thought they could do it was, well, first, by giving them mortgages, right? Give them a loan to buy a house, give them through the GI Bill, give them a loan to buy a house, but then saddle them with a whole big mortgage because anyone with a mortgage is not going to try to fight the system because he wants to pay back his, his loan and not lose his house. So give them a mortgage. But more importantly than that, put them in little individual homes that are spaced perfectly apart that don't really allow for the kind of neighborhood peer-to-peer lateral communication that people had in the big cities. These towns were designed without town halls, without bars, without places where people could congregate, because congregation means conversation. Congregation means people developing solidarity and people deciding that they don't really like the conditions, they don't really like their job, they don't really like how things are. And of course, when you're trying to rebuild a country, that's not what you want. You want, you, uh, or well, the kind of country they wanted to rebuild and, and in the fear that they were having, they really just wanted to rebuild a country that kept people working. So that meant keep all the houses separate, keep people separate. You don't want Joe sharing his lawnmower with Jack, right? So the houses have to be far enough apart so that Joe and Jack each buy their own lawnmower, right? You don't want the Smiths and the Joneses cooperating, you want them competing so that John buys one lawnmower and Jack buys a better one, then John upgrades him, his, and so on. And that's not just to feed Wall Street, that's to create jobs. The more lawnmowers that are being bought, the more assembly line jobs there'll be, and the more of these little houses we can put people in. No, it wasn't evil as such, it was just a game, right? They were gamifying a kind of a competitive scheme into the social fabric so that instead of having uh, this kind of communist solidarity thing, we would have a more American ideology of competition in a free market. Now, the problem is when the social reality crumbles, well, you get where we are today, right? With the opposite of team human, right? What you have is team me, is brand me. You have people competing individually in order to to uh, get what they see as, as the fixed sum of spoils in a in a zero sum game economy, right? Our our common interests end up uh, really taking a back seat or going into the background to our personal interests, our individual achievement. Where's my kid getting into college? Not how good is the education for my whole town? And as we moved from this this more collaborative, communal, solidarity-based society towards this one of of individualism and and personal achievement, you know, media also changed. Media changed from the hearth that the whole family would gather around or even neighbors would come to watch that show in the evening, you know, to this kind of media as isolation, right? I watch House of Cards, but, you know, I'm on episode three of season four while you're on episode two of season one. You know, I'm a walking spoiler. I can't even engage with you about it. We can't even use media as a common ground. It just becomes one more path to our sad isolation. 
you know, so how do we get it back? How do we get back shared experience? You know, it's really tricky. You know, you could say, oh, look, the Super Bowl is shared experience. Look how many zillion people watched that. Well, right, watched it alone from our homes. And even those kinds of shared experiences, there's a bunch of guilt in that now, right? Do we really want to sit and watch young men get concussions? You know, do we even gather in big places anymore for fear of getting viruses or some little terror attack? You know, and who can afford tickets to any of these things anyway? You know, when a Taylor Swift concert costs $2,000 to go to and a baseball game, even the, the crappiest seats is $50 to go to some bank-named stadium and watch a team. That's nuts, right? There's almost nothing people can do, or it feels as if there's no shared experiences on offer to us as workers, certainly, right? <laughs> we're, we're all freelancers. We are all disenfranchised. When you're working a different job every day, it's hard to make many friends doing it, and particularly when you're doing that job from home on a, on a 1099. You know, this sense of disenfranchisement and isolation and alienation makes it really hard for us to find each other. But what I'm wondering is if disenfranchisement is a new kind of membership. You know the way the Freelancers Union, originally in, in Brooklyn, in New York, it it created a new kind of union out of a whole bunch of freelancers. That's a first step, right? Most of those freelancers really just wanted health insurance and didn't meet up with each other. They were just glad for an organization that was uh, consolidating their uh, uh, their health concerns into a single pool. But what if we disenfranchised individuals, all of us, in the in the disparate little corners of of Team Human? actually came together, you know, and what sorts of mechanisms could we develop for us to reconnect? You know, the internet was supposed to be the place where that happened, but it's not going to happen with all of our separate little Facebook profiles, which is really just another way of uh, isolating ourselves. Facebook is really just the virtual form of Levittown, you know, pre-fabbed cookie cutter identities that are designed more to align us in terms of our mutual brand affinities than our mutual needs, than our actual solidarity. So what are those methods? Where do they come? You know, I think that our increasing disenfranchisement, our increasing sense of isolation actually pushes us all to a fringe where we begin to find each other again. We're out of desperation. We find these other people and without shame, share the experience that, shoot, it's really hard to make ends meet. I'm not... Yeah, I'm not fulfilling my creative capacity. I don't have anything I belong to. I feel really alone, you know, and accepting that isolation, that that sense of alienation really is the beginning of finding our common experience and reversing what is at least 75 years, but maybe longer process through which people in guilds, in communities, in solidarity, were separated into uh, uh, really saddened individuals disconnected from, from the larger corpus. And that's as good a reason as any for us to, uh, to forge a new Team Human. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College and online at teamhuman.fm. Hi, I'm Michael White, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Master Taylor, and I'm on Team Human. 
I'm Thomas Goki, and I'm on Team Human. So solidarity feels like a big word, you know, like from the Union era or maybe even Stalin or Marx. And solidarity to most of us sounds like work, you know, where (laughs) most of us like me, you know, I just want to get a job. I want to do my thing and not worry. I'm not political. So Esteban Kelly, executive director for the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives, co-ops are beautiful. They are beautiful. Engagement is an ideal. Co-ownership sounds kind of cool, but I just want a job. Why do I want to bother with all of that? Well, I think it's more <laughs> than just wanting a job, right? That solidarity is about, it's, it's deep. And so there's that. And I think that people crave connection uh, much more than you know having one job or one relationship or one thing to do. And so it's it it actually gets to a more fundamental human need about connection. But don't I have Facebook and and uh, J Date for that? <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps you do. Perhaps you do. And and those are platforms that, when used well, I think can expand the opportunities for solidarity, for hearing what's going on in other people's lives, for having empathy, for staying in touch, and then for really showing up for one another. And it's it's a two way street. It, it it's not only the work that is involved in being there for your friends, you find out that they're sick and you can walk over to their house and bring them some soup or whatever, but it's also the moments where you're sick or where you just had a relationship end and you need comfort or a companion or uh, moments where you lost a job and you're looking for some income and, and maybe you can help fill in a gap by watching your friend's uh, small children or maybe cooking them lunch uh, because they're really busy and that helps them and that helps you. So solidarity fundamentally gets at a win-win, and it's it's a concept of um, working out of your your most your most radical sense of self-interest for mutual benefit for you and other people. Yeah, you know it's interesting. I mean, I find that many times the people who are most likely to gravitate towards cooperative engagement, whether it's social cooperatives or economic cooperatives are the people who can best afford to. You know, you go up to Ithaca or Burlington, Vermont, or Great Barrington, or San Francisco, you know, or t- a, a relatively wealthy community of mm. people who realize, well, this life is not actually fulfilling me, and sure. <laughs> I'm working harder for each, you know, each padding of insulation I provide against mm. the torrent of the masses or whatever. Maybe there's another way. You know, where... It feels like what what needs to be done is that the case for uh, cooperative engagement uh, needs to be made for the people who need it most, for the people who are, you know, if you're working three jobs, you know, you do the McDonald's in the morning and Home Depot in the afternoon and then Amazon Turk at night, it's really hard to even conceive of what's the alternative. There's no time to go do it and to find it. Yeah, I, I think that that's... That's what the co-op movement of your kind of came from was this idea of opting out of saying, you know, enough is enough. I don't I don't really like the way things are running or this is this doesn't feel like a fair deal. 
And people with relative, whether it was educational, intellectual privilege, or based on wealth, like you were saying, or, or geography or culture and circumstances that that they, for consumer um, movements or for some of the early worker co-op movements um, and sectors, really said, you know what, I'm going to opt out of the mainstream and do this alternative thing. And I think what's changed in the last at least 15 years, certainly since the turn of the millennium, is that it's no longer led by that cultural moment, the sort of echo of the, the social change in the 60s and 70s, that what's happening is, is economic drivers are really what's pushing the growth that we're seeing in the co-op sector, especially for worker co-ops. Even just in the last, since 2010, 60% of new worker co-ops that have been developed have been owned and operated by people of color. Um, and largely those aren't Ivy League people of color. These are people who are in low wage um, industries and sectors. Um, and even the largest worker co-op in the country, uh, Cooperative Home Care Associates, which is up in the in the Bronx, in the South Bronx, which is, by the way, one of the poorest congressional districts in the country, it's uh, it's got two about 2,000 worker owners who are almost entirely women and mostly women of color. These are Black and Latino women who do assisted home care. That's a low-wage sector to be in, but the advantage of being in a worker cooperative is that the benefits that they have, the wages that they get are way more competitive compared to the jobs that they could be doing, doing assisted home health care in a traditional company, or like you were mentioning, the alternative, which would be you know working three jobs at McDonald's plus Burger King plus Wendy's. Right. Well, how do they figure out how to do this? I mean, does like a some kind of union co-op organizer come with a handbook or is it is it just figured out? Well, right now, right now, there's a plurality of ways that people are developing worker co-ops, and some are developing through expanding existing ones, whether that's franchising or just picking, going into a bigger location or a second location. Some of them are through converting existing businesses that have already been up and operating, either as a succession plan for maybe uh, an owner who's retiring or or has a change of, of passions and wants to sell the business to the workers. So it could be from expansion or conversion or startups. And the startups can come from he- heavy organizing and planning and capital intensive things or, or more of a union organizing kind of model. Or sometimes they come from a more entrepreneurial space where people are motivated by their own idea and business plan. And these are often small businesses um, and then they reach out to the co-op sector and, and are able to tap into the technical assistance um, that we have in our community to get things up and running. And that involves everything from you know getting a business plan developed and vetted to figuring out those internal structures and systems. But I think that the fundamental difference in, in the structure of worker-owned businesses and, and worker co-ops is that we've cut out all the fat. Instead of having to run all your operations, have a successful business, and then skim off any surplus and give it to somebody who doesn't work there <laughs> because they invested in it and took a risk, the people who took the risk are the ones who work there. And so that money gets retained. There's actually a kind of a wonky process um, set up by the IRS where you can keep some returned earning, retained earnings uh, out of your surplus at the end of the year. So instead of profit being distributed out to shareholders for worker-owned businesses, you can retain that without it being taxed and save it in an internal account and reinvest it in the business. And then you can distribute it a couple of years later back out to the workers. So you're right. able to, um, to sit, rather than the business paying taxes on it and then paying out 
um, some sort of dividends or shares or extra bonuses to workers and then them paying taxes on it again, you can avoid that double taxation. It's a special statute that only exists for worker co-ops. So those right. are some of the ways that, that we're able to actually be more profitable, reinvest traditional investor-owned businesses. Yeah, and I guess, you know, and and in most cases, actually less risky. You know, the the argument kind of against being part of a worker co-op is the guy who's like, I don't want to own the business and have the risk of whatever. I, that's my boss. I just want to go to work, you know, do my job, get my paycheck, come home, watch TV, play ball with my kid, go back to work the next day and not have this headache of worrying. But the fact is, when you work for even a, a, a Twitter or a startup or one of these uh, uh, kind of high-flying uh, uh, internet companies, these are companies that are, are more like flip this house than they are exactly. like homes. These are companies, Twitter is, it makes $500 million, you know, a quarter, yet it's in terrible risk of going under because yeah. the original investors want 100X or 1000X uh, on their original investment, right. which is just not going to work unless Twitter becomes Facebook or Google or something that 140 character a messaging system just isn't, you know. But <laughs> if the investment is the time, the same time, you know, the same labor that you would have put in, um, if now that's your your also your investment in the company, and there's not this giant group of shareholders to pay back, you know, you become much more like a family business where you know the object of the game is less to figure out how much money can I make with this business that I can then give to my grandchild as cash and rather how can I create a business that's still running strong when my grandchild's alive so they can go work in it you know which is a it's a it's a much less risky approach i mean you may not yeah. have you know you may not get to sell it tomorrow but um, you get to operate it 100 years from now well and you also can sell your shares yeah you know as a part owner and part stakeholder, you can work there for a whole career or for 10 years or for as long as it makes sense for you. And you could still sell those shares and take that money. And maybe that becomes a startup money for your grandchild or funds for their education or something else. So that's different than just sort of collecting a wage because most of us can't afford to invest in businesses that we don't work in um, the way that you know Wall Street operates. And you actually do have that extra asset in your life. And that's incredible. I mean, that this has been, become a source of wealth building for people, like I was saying, this, this new trend for people who are not from owning class backgrounds, who are maybe from poor or working class backgrounds, and certainly people who, even millennials, where they, they might have come from a class background where there might have been hopes one day um, of them having a certain source of wealth, but the precarity of the way that labor is shifting and jobs and careers and debt, uh, all those dynamics, now those kinds of securities are evaporating. And so it becomes an opportunity for that entrepreneurial spirit to not just be this gamble where you risk it all on an idea and it might go belly up. Or even family-owned right. business, which I think we're most similar to as, as, as a network of small businesses, mostly small businesses, where that risk is, is all taken on by one core family or a family with some supporting friends. And if it doesn't work out, then everyone, every, it hurts everyone and they all go under. And that was that whole network that was there to support one another. So if that project fails, that was the security for, for the uncle 
who might have had a project that they were hoping to, you know, or or maybe that was grandma's retirement uh, money that she contributed some of it. So what's different about worker co-ops is that we're taking, rather than it being the familial bond, we're taking a similar idea of distributing that risk among more than just one sole proprietor or two joint proprietors and distributing it among, it might be 10 people, it might be 20 people, it might be 30 people, it might be 50. Um, so that shares that, that's, that, that, that distributes that risk. It means that nobody's family is going to go under if the actual project doesn't work work out. But meanwhile, you've got those 50 people or those 10 people all having a vested interest instead of one manager or something in making sure that that business does work out. And right. And a, plus, a, it's a it's a proof of concept. Also, I mean, in a sort of kickstarty way, even though you're not getting capital from these people, if you're able to get fifty or a hundred people believing enough in a business to come work in it, then maybe it's a good idea. You know, it's a sure. kind of a, a it's a it's a pretest of your your uh, uh, your business plan. Whereas if you're opening the seventh pizzeria on the block, you might not get fifty people uh, coming to work for exactly. you because they're like, "There's enough pizza here. You're so stupid." Or the people working, they're not necessarily concerned with making the business the best the best one, or the most sustainable one, or the friendliest one, or the most community oriented one. They might just be there for a paycheck, and they might just mm-hmm. be there for one summer. And that's different than a business that people have much more of a stake in being good neighbors and and um, and really giving back to their community or having the job be meaningful. And in order for it to be meaningful, for you not to be bored at your job, just punching into a shift, really, really having more of a stake in in and a say in how it's operated, what the what the difference is from a business perspective, how it all runs, and also being involved in in a community in 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 the day to day operations with your coworkers. Yeah, well, you know, so many of us have been, basically, if you're under 50, you've been raised in a world where the idea of a regular job is foreign anyway. (laughs) There's no idea where you go work for some company and get a pension and, and have security. That's kind of gone. We're all used to being, well, to living in precarity and and kind of sure. perpetual disenfranchisement but on a certain level you know as you describe it it seems to me that while while precarity and disenfranchisement may not be prerequisites to participating in something like this they're awfully good motivators you know that we're maybe moving into a kind of a you know the meek inherit the earth phenomenon here where those who still have the ability to hold out hope that their middle class dream is going to work for them in some ways are the least likely to actually reap the benefits of the distributed economic models that you're talking about <laughs> well i think what's interesting is um getting at those four those, those core values um that people hold up things like democracy and and having voice and empowerment and participation it's so funny how that becomes a, a hobby or a side project. Like you can have a voice in your after school club or you can have a voice in the PTA that we don't think of democracy being incorporated into our economic process. And as that, that whole sector of our society, which is so significant. And so what we talk about is not just co-ops and worker co-ops, but actually workplace democracy. That if you're spending five days a week and like you were saying, those of us who are under 50 are probably spending six days a week um, at, a, at a workplace. Well, it may as well be fulfilling and empowering and participatory and all those other things. And so what we have the advantage of seeing in democratic workplaces is people experimenting with everyday economic democracy, right? That democracy isn't something where you 
you uh, click on a bunch of blogs and follow their polls and maps. And, and then once or twice a year, you get to see the results or you actually get to vote yourself. But that it's part of the day-to-day decision-making that most of us have never had the privilege of actually participating, seeing. So being, being able to do that in a democratic workplace, which doesn't mean that it's all completely flat and you have to come to consensus, right? Many of these have voting just like you do at a union or might have managers or might have bosses. But the difference is that those bosses are all accountable ultimately to all of the workers who are the main stakeholders there. So the workers can fire the boss. The workers supervise the boss. <laughs> they probably get paid just as much as the boss. Or if the boss gets paid more, it's for a reason, you know, that, that, that it, may, it might be incentivized or it might be based on their experience. But either way, the workers are the ones who set the vision and the, the goals and the metrics. This is the kind of business we want to be. This is the way we want to shift things. This is the way we want to expand our product line. Or these are the ways we want to treat our workers. These are the kind of benefits we want to see. It's, it's really incredible to, to see what's happening in, in a lot of the businesses within our membership at the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops, where people, given the opportunity to govern and manage the business themselves, are coming up with all kinds of um, you know, sabbaticals just for, um, for personal study and learning languages and uh, time for writing books or traveling, spending more time with their family. And then they come back to the workplace enriched and bringing that expansive perspective to bear on the day-to-day operations of the business. Right. I mean, and the the most people who manage businesses today say, well, if you let the lunatics run the asylum like that, they're just going to tear down the business. They're going to take all the money and give themselves vacations and educate themselves. And who's left to to mine the ship? But I think the real, the argument is that those people are also the owners of the company. They have a vested interest in the company actually working. You know, exactly. the, if the workers just did that, they lose their business. So they are thinking, you know, both ways at once. They're thinking as as owners. They're thinking as community members who live in the in the pollution range of the company they're working for. They're thinking as customers because they probably use the products and their family uses the products, so they don't want them to be bad. And they're thinking as workers who have jobs and owners, shareholders who have to reap the dividends. So you know, each stakeholder in the enterprise is no longer a single stakeholder. You know, at odds with the other ones, but is uh, uh, each stakeholder is, in a sense, four or five different people. Well, I would go even further than that, and 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 just hold, let's take a good look at what's actually happening with the with the majority of our economy, which is investor owned. Right. What's what's happening there is that they're actually running, uh, chasing the the to the lowest common denominator, running businesses into the ground, often sometimes just to get bankruptcy or get bailouts. Or, uh, or they're undermining the environment or not paying their workers adequately, or they're delivering a, an inferior product so that they can get more profit out of it or produce things more cheaply. And so that's actually not working so well for us. I mean, look at the neighborhoods around us. Look at uh, what's happening with climate change and all, you know, all these externalities and pollution and extraction and maximizing the whole idea of maximizing profit at the expense of people and 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 communities and and even consumers none of that is working out very well and so that's part of why i mean we're embedded within a broader community of of cooperative businesses which we believe are a superior business model even when it's the farmers in a producer co-op who are who are running the business or who or when it's the consumers in a consumer co-op you know consumer grocery store co-ops or rei kind of co-ops 
even those are superior. And we just we just believe that when you insert this extra element of democratic management and worker ownership, it takes it that much further. And then the ripples to the community are tremendous. Right now, the the CEOs I talk to, you know, beg to differ. You know, I'm not talking about the CEO of of Exxon. You know, I was talking to a guy a couple of months ago making these very arguments for letting his workers. It was a uh, this guy who makes like stationary supplies. And I was talking to him about letting his workers have even 5% of the shares of the company so they can begin to see it as a cooperative and be stakeholders in his enterprise. And he's like, I don't even have workers anymore. I had to outsource all my manufacturing to China. And I'm like, what do you mean you had to? And he goes, it's the only way I could compete against the competition, right? They went to China. They lowered their prices. I had to lower my prices too. Why are you telling – how am I going to hire Americans and give them a piece of my company and compete against all these other companies? Right. So that's the trajectory that the traditional economy is on right now. And it's it's just getting worse and worse. And then they're going from China. They're saying, well, we can't afford it either. So now it's going to India. And then they're exactly. saying, well, we can't afford it either. And now it's going to East Africa, right? I mean, just chasing the bottom dollar is just a ridiculous premise that actually we can add value. And then it's not all about the dollar, ultimately, that that consumers, you know, that they, they express their value and often will choose something that um, benefits their community. Or that that reflects their values, that it's not always about what is the cheapest thing, especially if the quality of it isn't as good or the service or how you feel being in that space feels exclusive. Right. Um, But when you're in the it feels like, though, when you're in the global market, you know, when you're competing, you know, against other brands on the shelf at Walmart or Costco, um, you've already lost the battle. It feels like these kinds of worker cooperative companies, they kind of work better in more bounded communities where the customers can actually experience the benefits of consuming in this way rather than in the other way. Well, some of it is also marketing and branding. I mean, you could look at the example of Equal Exchange, which is a pretty well-known brand. Um, and it's it's a, one of the larger worker co-ops um, in the country, and it's one of the brands that's well-known. Um, they were able to build a whole movement and a, and a set of awareness around the idea of, of direct trade and fair trade and the whole idea of commodities that aren't going to, that aren't local and aren't, you know, you know, one's growing chocolate or coffee or bananas in their backyard in Massachusetts. Um, but that that they're able to to offer the value of saying, well, let's pay farmers fairly and let's have an integrated supply chain where there's transparency about where things are coming from, where the tea is sourced from, where the coffee is sourced from, uh, and how much people are making, whether they're the the actual campesinos themselves, whether they're uh, people along the distribution chain. So there, I mean, I, I think that it's not necessarily true that every cooperative needs to be some boutique thing in order for it to be local and responsible. I think that that in fact our globalized international economy demands more transparency um, and that cooperative businesses offer an opportunity to do that because they're democratic, because they're doing education, because they are responsible to the community around them rather than shareholders who are, you know, bounded by private boardrooms. Right. And at least they have the efficiency of not needing to pay up 90% of the revenue to these passive shareholders. You know? or, or the CEO, right? I right. mean, there's a glut among the manage the management, um, especially at the very apex, at the very top, when you have the presidents and CEOs 
making ridiculous amounts of money. Right. So if you want to look at layoffs and cutbacks, if you did it from the the top down rather than the bottom up, you know, it might be a lot more efficient because then you get to keep the workers who are actually making the things and lose the the blubber that's really just uh, accumulating the value that's been created. Well, exactly. I think a lot of a lot of what we're seeing is people getting out of the scarcity mentality and realizing that there's so much wealth. <laughs> so many of these companies, the very ones you're talking about, are, are making record profits, um, and that really the 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 expenses in main t- is propping up this billionaire class, this millionaire class, and it's not even just the one percent. I mean, those people we don't even see. Those yeah. those people are being <laughs> driven around in private limousines. But it's you know even the ten percent, even the the top fifteen percent. I just heard about a holiday that they have in the UK. I don't know if you know about this um, called Fat Cat Tuesday, and uh, I think it's the first Tuesday in January. It's it's like the second business day of the year or something, and it's the day where CEOs have already made as much as all of their workers will make for the entire year. And it's by like lunchtime or something on on the second Tuesday of the year. That's the economy that we're dealing with right now. It's absurd. (laughs) It is absurd. It is absurd. And then, then, you know, beyond that, it's almost beyond the economic argument. You know, this show is called Team Human because what I'm trying to do is help people understand that, you know, we – we are a team. You know, there's team human versus team machine or versus team capitalism sure. or all of these automatic uh, uh, operating systems that mean to dehumanize us. I um, mean, you, you also do work in the gay community, the black community, the, the, the women's rights community, you know, all of these yeah. uh, marginalized communities. I mean, I, there's, there's people listening to this, you know, People like me who might say, hey, I'm a white man with a college education. I've got a competitive advantage here. (laughs) Why do I want to mess with y'all? But the real reason why they should is because it's lonely out there, you know, that there's something about solidarity that's that's bigger than just the economic argument. I understand the economic argument and the Marxist argument is, is super important right now as people are starving, but there's also the the. I hate to use a word like this, but there's the spiritual component, the social component of actually connecting and 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 conspiring with other human beings. You know, well, that's also Marxist, right? I mean, the idea that that we're alienated from each other, um, and I think that that even when you opened by talking about having some suburban job where you just kind of go and you punch in and you do your work and you come home and you hang out with your kids or whatever, that that's incredibly it's alienating, it's lonely. I mean, that's what Marx was talking about. And so the whole premise of having a more socialized economy is by overcoming alienation or what, uh, what Fanon talks about as disalienation, which is not saying that like, let's erase and forget that we were ever alienated, but how do we overcome it and, be, and come through it and in, a, in a better position than we were before with all the hindsight of, of, of remembering how disconnected we were and how, how hard that is and keeping that in mind while we're building connections and community with each other. And what really is the main obstacle to that? Is it our fear of each other as people? Is it our our, inhibi- our sexual inhibitions? Is it our gender confusion? Is it our, our racial confusion? What, or are those just all symptoms of some greater alienation, some greater fear? 
well, people have different opinions about that, but my, in my <laughs> view, <laughs> in my view, I, th- I think that those things are all, they are interconnected. I mean, I studied anthropology and political economy and, you know, all, all those other things that you mentioned around uh, racial liberation and uh, queer liberation. So that's part of my background. And I think that they're all interconnected, that, that capitalism and some of the economic and political and historical realities and contingencies produce this hyper-individualized thing, right? As cons- when, when capital markets needed more consumers, they needed to create this idea of an individual, not even, a fa- I mean, it started with classes of pe- races of people, then classes of people, then families. Now it's down to the individual. You're targeting not your family, but your 12-year-old daughter <laughs> and, not, and not her sister who's four years younger, right? I mean, we're, that's the whole thing about, about marketing, especially in this, this late capitalist stage. It's really getting directly at the individual, and so in the process of overcoming, and it's not just as consumers, right? It's also as workers and everything else. So everything about our life is hyper-individualized up to the point where what's the idea of maturing and growing up? You come out of adolescence and you're supposed to be able to find your own little apartment and your own little job, right? There isn't a sense of, of living uh, cooperatively in a, um, in a one big building or one big house where maybe you have your own bedroom or something, but you're sharing a kitchen and you're eating meals together and you're singing songs together um, and having, uh, having holidays and all of that stuff. That you only do that with your family. And once, once you're properly independent and mature, independence equals being individualized, right? And so mm-hmm. overcoming all of that, I think, it, yeah, there is a spiritual piece to it. There is a social piece to it. Ultimately, it, it is also economic, that this is part of how it's not fundamental to how we are as human beings. It's something that has been intentionally crafted and manufactured, that it needs to be learned over and over again, because children aren't born that way, and they don't naturally think that way. But we have to be socialized into the idea of individualism. And so I think that I, that's part of why I have so much hope in overcoming this, because Fundamentally, as humans, and I know this, you know, from my anthropology background, we are hardwired to be co- cooperative and interdependent, and we wouldn't have survived otherwise. That's how we made it through as uh, as naked primates out there with with mm-hmm. not a lot in in, in in so far as fangs and claws. <laughs> right. It wasn't our competitive advantage; it was our our collaborative advantage. Right. We created that, this thing called community in order to survive. This thing called society. That's that's how we got through. Right. Um, this thing and, called team human. Yeah, team human. Exactly. Hashtag team human. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Esteban Kelly. Yeah, getting to see I was like, I don't know, a month ago at that crazy meeting. But um, just getting to see you and look in your eyes, I just, you know, I just had to hug you right away. (laughs) uh, The first thing I felt, because, you know, I've read your stuff and watched your videos. And the, the first and main thing I feel when I see you or talk to you is just love, you know? I'm sorry to admit <laughs> that, but it is. It's just pure old love and um the your your ability to to bring that out in people and really to teach us. I think all the various things you're teaching are a form really of that. You know, we can call it, you know, support and mutual aid and all these things, but it's that uh kind of ineffable quirky force that uh makes us happy to be together. I mean, you 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 exude that and teach that and uh, and share that and implement it in a way that uh, you know is not just beautiful, but is you know highly constructive and helps eradicate the the pain and poverty and alienation all around us. And yeah. really, you know, for that, I just really want to uh, you know thank you for being such a, uh, a a leader and coach and member of uh, of this team. 
Thanks, Doug. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that a lot of times on the left, there can be this sense of uh, we're all we're all in the struggle and we're struggling. Or if we're dealing with racism, then we have to deal with guilt and shame. And we just don't come from a culture. Those of us who in my worker co-op, which does education and training and community organizing, right, called Aorta, the Anti-Oppression mm-hmm. Resource and Training Alliance, right. we believe fundamentally in a politics of of hope and moving past guilt and shame. Not that those are invalid feelings, but they come up and you just kind of zen them out. That you move on, you you interrogate where they're coming from. And that's not where we dwell. That's not where we we believe that change comes from being inspired and having really understanding your power to 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 move through something. What are what what can we learn or what are actions we can take to change things fundamentally rather than dwelling in that dark place. So I think that's that's some of that spirit that you were talking about. And it's it's incredible being in day-long or weekend-long conversations about uh, class and race and gender and homophobia and transphobia and all these things and people talking about, well, I have this background and this is privileged and I'm coming to terms with this, this, and this. And this is the first time I've had these conversations without feeling drained and without feeling guilty and without feeling ashamed. Um, Because I think that's what we need. You know, we're Mm -hmm. making this all this team human stuff move forward. Beautiful. Well, thanks so much for joining us on Team Human today. And we're going to keep up with you. Everybody knows I'll have all the links up where they can find your stuff cool. and, uh, and get involved. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Today's show was made possible thanks in part to an underwriting donation provided by Zago, strategic design studio committed to positive social change. Our friends at Zago also designed our logo and helped me with the visual design and website. Special thanks to Fugazi and Mike Watt for sharing the music you heard on the show. I'm Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.